The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This is the first off-season edition of the podcast, and college football is coming through by providing plenty of news to chew on, from Kyler Murray to Alabama's coaching staff turnover, plus signing day is just around the corner. To catch up on all of it with me is Tom Luganbill from ESPN and SiriusXM. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps us find more college football fans, and it helps more college football fans find us. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is Tom Luganbill from ESPN, and you can hear him on SiriusXM. He is one of the hardest working men in show business. Tom, thanks so much for squeezing me in. Offseason is here, but you know, college football is great because the offseason is never really here. It's always in season. We have Kyler Murray. We have Alabama staff changes. We have transferring players and players leaving early. And we have signing day coming up in a few weeks. So thanks for squeezing me in to all that is going on. Oh, you're more than welcome, man. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Listen, I want to start with Kyler Murray, who declared for the draft yesterday, the Heisman Trophy winner from Oklahoma. Um, we know he's short, okay? That's not go- that's <laughs> Yeah, you've heard that, right? Yeah. You've, you've heard that? I, I have heard. He's 5'10", right? Wait, no, wait a minute. He's 5'9". Wait, no, wait a minute. He's 5'8". I, I, <laughs> you know what? The funny thing is I heard somebody on TV give a 5'8", and – Oh gosh! I, no, and he, right, I stood next to him at the Heisman. Right, I, I, I like to say I'm five ten, but I might be closer to five nine. He is definitely not shorter than I am. I know for a no, fact. One thing I know, he is not shorter than I am, so he is definitely not five eight. Let's put the height thing aside because he's not going. Okay. He's not going to grow. When you watch him play. Tell me about the rest of his game. How much do you think the rest of his game can translate to the pros? When you're scouting him, when you're looking for the the other things that you need to see for a quarterback to be an NFL prospect, what do you see? Let's start off, and I, and I was on record when he was coming out of high school and we you know, were evaluating him and we had him in the Under Armour All-America game. And after his recruitment, I remember sitting with our staff and saying, if this guy was four inches taller, he might be the best quarterback prospect we've evaluated at that time in the, you know, the 10 years we'd been doing it. And it wasn't just because of the physical traits. It's some of the things that you can't coach, um, competitive temperament, uh, mental toughness, the ability to keep his eyes downfield when he's under duress or under pressure. You know, everybody makes so much commotion about the height. I don't think the height really has anything to do with it. The game has changed. We are in a shotgun-based, spread the field, widen the throwing lanes, change the launch point type of offensive era. That suits the short quarterback. That helps the short quarterback. Now, if you ask that guy to play in an I formation and play in, in a multiple pro style and drop back and seven-set drop within the pocket and play action, 
that player's not going to thrive. But that's not the world we're living in right now. So I don't worry about the height. I think the concern, Ralph, is durability, the, the types of shots that he could take or that he could be prone to taking. And I'm not saying when he takes off and runs or when he's utilized as a runner or he's creating or extending plays. I'm talking about the shots that are going to come within the pocket, and they are going to come. And there is a difference between six four and six foot, and there's a difference between six foot and five ten when it just comes to the overall structure of your body. But when it comes to the things that you got to have to win games, that you have to have to lead an offense or to lead a locker room, I think he is chock full of those traits, and and I really believe that. I think that. Everywhere he's been, he's, he's made people around him better. He's able to make plays on his own. And what people don't truly value about him is just how good of a passer he is, how accurate of a passer he is, his ability to layer the football and to throw the football vertically. He's got much better arm talent than anybody's ever given him credit for. And if you've seen him play in, first, in person, you would recognize that. So, I don't even think the height's the issue as it relates to seeing the field or any of those things. I don't think the makeup is the issue. I think the issue is durability. If we're really talking about him being serious about the NFL, which, Ralph, to be honest with you, I don't think that's that's what this is all about. I think it's about an entirely different area. But if we're talking about that, it's about durability. That's the question for people looking for a draft choice in the first round if they're considering it. You know, listen, I think it was pretty obvious. Anybody, again, talking about the Heisman process, he got asked about baseball and football a zillion times to the point where you could tell he was like clearly was tired of answering it. But even within that process, it was also very apparent that he didn't want to give up football. I mean, that this guy was a football player. It was, yeah. it was a kid who really wanted to play football because at no point did he ever shut it down and say, no, I'm playing baseball. This is it for me. So clearly he could change his mind in the next couple of months just because he declared for the draft doesn't mean he has to be in the draft. He could change right. his mind. The declaring for the draft thing is a college eligibility issue. He's done with college no matter what. So he could conceivably change his mind and decide to play baseball. But it it always seemed to me, again, just from being around him for a couple of days with the Heisman, that he was making it very clear that I really like football and I would really like to play football. And I think he does. And I think that's genuine. I think it's authentic. But I also believe that he sees the bigger picture as well. And I think so much of what has transpired over the last week to 10 days with him and all of the discussion and the and the, and the exposure and the attention that this has drawn isn't so much about playing football long-term. I think he realizes where the long-term path is for him and where the greater percentages lie for career success. I think what he and his father, Kevin, are trying to do is somehow, some way, come up with compensation, whether it's through the Oakland A's, whether it's through endorsements off the field, come up with something that could make up for what they perceive to be could be lost income by not at least allowing yourself to get drafted. You know, if they can get that extra 10 million or 12 million or whatever it would, would be that. And I think that's what this is really more about than anything else, because as much as he loves football, I do think he sees the bigger picture in terms of long-term viability so why not go out and try and either and, and leverage Major League Baseball or the Oakland A's 
and try and come up with ways to, to generate that revenue and that income that would be lost by not playing football. And listen, who can blame them? I mean, that's the world we're living in right now. No, it's an interesting situation. You're right, because you, baseball clearly has a certain uh, path to longevity. And once you get into the baseball pipeline, boy, the money is great. I mean, you know, like you can be a mediocre baseball player and, and last a well, mediocre, relatively speaking. Let's put it, let, let's sure. put the, uh, the term of the analytics term. You can be a, a replacement level baseball player, sort of a league average baseball player and make a lot of money for a very long time. But your entry into professional football has a lot more reward. That initial entry, that initial contract for a first rounder is a lot better than what he has with the Oakland A's. So you're right. Mm-hmm. There's there's an interesting mix there. Listen, I'd love to see him play football because I think he's a spectacular athlete and it would be fascinating to see him, especially if he goes to a coach who is forward thinking like a Cliff Kingsbury. We've already seen the quotes out of Kingsbury who said, I pick him first. And now he's with the Cardinals. Let me link those two things because I want to talk about Kingsbury and that hire. And, you know, I I know you don't necessarily, you're, you're like me, you, you kind of watch the NFL, but you're not necessarily deep into the NFL. But what did you think of Cliff moving to the NFL as the son of a coach and a guy who's been around this game for a long time and what that could look like a guy who was a losing record in college, but now is in charge of an NFL team with very little experience? Yeah, it it was really surprising to me. Really surprising. Now, I, I think Cliff Kingsbury is a really good quarterback coach. I think he's a really good um, offensive coordinator. I don't think he's proven yet to be a well-rounded head coach. What I mean by that is not just being an offensive head coach, being a head coach where the defense is the foundation and player evalu- evaluation is the foundation. I think you know, a lot of these air raid guys, it's all about scheme, 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 and coaching the offense, coaching the offense. And you know what that led to? It led to a 35-40 and 40 record in three years of a losing record out of the five years of the head coach there. And I just think the NFL is in a frame of mind right now where they're all looking for the next Sean McVay. They're all looking for the guy that brings that college offense to the National Football League so that they can become – what Kansas city has become or what Doug Peterson has done with Philadelphia when he's had to play with Nick Foles and making that transition to where you turn on the TV on Sundays, Ralph, and you watch the Kansas city chiefs and they look like Oklahoma. You know, they they look like Clemson. They they don't, this this ain't Bill Walsh on the West coast offense or Joe Gibbs in your multiple pro style counter trade. Those days are done. And I think what's happened is quarterbacks aren't trained the way they used to be. They don't come up in the three to five to seven step drop offense where they've got to read coverage and, and, and diagnose things pre-snap and produce a result post-snap with all the moving parts and, and really understand the dynamic and the theory of the game. The game is turned into half field reads, shotgun passing game, dink and dunk, RPO based. And that's how these, co- these, these players seem to operate. And that's how they think. It's also how they grew up, too. A lot of these players literally grew up in this system. That's exactly right. That's all they know. So why I think what's happened is is the NFL, the smart ones, the Andy Reeds, the Doug Petersons, the McVeighs, they're all starting to realize we need to stop being, quote, unquote, system-oriented and start doing what these guys are capable of doing 
from both a physical and mental capacity and stop trying to stick a square peg uh, into a round hole. I mean, when you, when you look at it, when you look at the NFL over the last 25 years, Ralph, and, and this is, I think this, this question started off about Cliff Kingsbury, but this is why Cliff Kingsbury is at the Arizona Cardinals right now. You have essentially two players, all right? I'll give you three if we're going to assume that Baker Mayfield's going to be a player over the course of the next 8 to 10 to 12 years, okay? But let's remove Baker for a moment. There have been two players that have come out of some form or version of the air raid offense over the last 25 years that have flourished in the NFL, and that both of them have happened in the last two years. You've got Patrick Mahomes, and you've got Jared Goff. Mm-hmm. And who are their two coaches, and what have those coaches done? They've molded the offense around that player's strengths and what they did in college, not the other way around. And so that's the shift that I think the NFL is making, and that's what the Arizona Cardinals want to see um, out of Cliff Kingsbury. Can he now take those concepts that are largely simplified? You have a Josh Rosen. You can rebuild the roster. Can he be the next McVay? Can he be the next, you know, Sean Payton of 12 years ago? Can he be, you know, what Doug Peterson has, has become? I don't know. Time will tell. I, I kind of chuckle because the first thing he's going to do is he's going to walk into the office and ask what a tight end is. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's going to ask, well, what does FB stand for? Oh, of course, that's a fullback. What's a fullback? <laughs> so there, there's going to be a learning curve here. It's going to be a real interesting experience. I think Steve Kine, the general manager, Ralph, I think he has pushed his chips to the table and he has bet on himself and it could be a life altering bet for him in his career. You talk about coaching turnover and Kingsbury leaving USC to the Cardinals was probably the most interesting thing that happened in sort of this second wave of coaching carousel. Now it's mostly about assistance and the team that really has the most fascinating assistant turnover is Alabama. Let's go back to the championship game just for a second, because one of the narratives that came out of that was Alabama got outcoached, and I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. When you watch that game, not just how did Alabama get outcoached, but when you saw that game and thought, okay, what does Alabama need going forward? What is wrong with Alabama from a coaching perspective that maybe is different from what I've seen in the past, and how can it change going forward? Give me your impressions of that aspect of Alabama got out coached because sometimes Alabama got out coached is a little oversimplified. Well, I, I, it can be a little oversimplified, and I would also also caution people to be making knee jerk reactions. I'll ask you before I answer that question. I'll ask you, Ralph. In the ten or eleven years I guess it's been since Nick Saban has been in Tuscaloosa, how many times has they looked like that on the field? Well, never. Literally, never. I mean, okay. Right. We've never, never seen Literally. an Alabama team lose in that fashion. Right. So we're not talking about a trend here. Right. We're not talking about a downhill spiral that has been rolling with momentum for the last three to four weeks. You know what happened? They played poorly, and they didn't bring their A game. And for the one time that they chose to do that, they happened to play a team that had personnel that could match them and didn't make those mistakes. So you know what? They got beat. When you look at the previous two matchups with them, you can remember the Alabama-Clemson game from a year ago, Alabama beat Clemson's butt. Mm-hmm. And you know why? Because they didn't make the mistakes that Clemson made. Clemson didn't play good. They didn't, they didn't play good at quarterback. They, they just didn't execute well. Alabama did. The year before, though, those two teams were almost flawless, and it was a barn burner down to the end 
because the two teams are so evenly matched and they both played well. Well, this time around, Alabama laid an egg and it becomes so magnified because we never see it happen. We become so conditioned to seeing them be so flawless in their execution and their discipline and their ability to limit penalties, create turnovers, not turn over the ball, you know, rule field position. And on this particular night, they ran up against the buzzsaw talent-wise and did all of the uncharacteristic things that we never see from Alabama. I've always made the statement about Alabama when they're playing an opponent because, what, 99 times out of 100, they're not going to play somebody that's as talented as they are. So what that means is in order for you to beat Alabama, Alabama has to do something to help you. You know, they have to play poorly, do things uncharacteristic of their nature. Well, they chose to do that against a team that's as good as they are, which means they had no chance of winning the game. Now, I don't think anybody believed it was going to be a blowout, but I think on this one particular night, they won out, they played bad, they didn't execute well, everything the other team seemed to do turned out right, and sometimes you sit in the stands or you sit in the press box and you just sit there and say, you know what, this just might be Clemson's night. And this might just not be Alabama's night. And that's not to take anything away uh, from Clemson in any way, shape, or form. They out-executed, out-played, out-performed, out-coached Alabama, I think, in every facet. But I, I just think it's odd that we have this notion that where does Alabama go from here? <laughs> it's been my experience with Nick Saban. When they lose or they get beat, they seem to come roaring back with a vengeance because that fuels that coach and that staff and that football team, unlike any other team I've seen in recent memory, when you look at them in the regular season when they lost the game, Ralph, that's the worst thing that can happen to the rest of college football because mm. it, it resets the charge, recharges the batteries. Now all of a sudden they go on and they start kicking everybody's tail because they had a little bit of a wake-up call. Well, now they got a whole off-season of a wake-up call, and a bulk of that football team is all coming back. I will be interested to see who he brings in there. There have been reports that Steve Sarkeesian can sure. be the guy. And I, I will say this also, like, Alabama will play Alabama football no matter who comes in there, right? I mean, I, I'm not yep. saying, like, a ba- that you could have a coach that doesn't fit perfectly, that maybe brings some ideas that don't mesh well. So I'm not saying that the hires are unimportant, but ultimately – you are going to come to Alabama and play and coach the way Nick Saban wants you to coach and the yeah. style that Nick Saban wants you to coach. But it will be interesting to see if, if it is Sark, only because I find it fascinating to see Alabama fans having to sort of buy into whatever, because you have to buy into whatever Saban sells because he's been golden since he's been there. Right. But nonetheless, like, yeah, but nonetheless, like, it, it just be interesting to see how Alabama fans go, okay, I guess you're right, Nick. Like, Whatever you say, you know, I'm sure Sark will be great. (laughs) Yeah, it's like their fan base all of a sudden assumes that Nick Saban started taking stupid pills. (laughs) And I will say this, whether it's Sark or somebody else, you hit on a very good point there, Ralph, in the sense that at the core and foundation of Alabama football and what they are, particularly on offense, is toughness. They're going to run the football. The offense is going to have a foundation of multiple pro-style principles, and then they're going to have tweaks and things of that nature that are going to include elements of the spread offense. But when you have that core foundation of a multiple pro-style approach, there's not that many of those guys coaching in college football anymore. So if you're going to make that, if you want to bring that into your program and maintain that side of things, to some degree, you're almost forced to look to the NFL because everybody at the collegiate level now is almost entirely a, a, a spread 
type of team or spread type of background. And I don't think Nick Saban wants to go full spread. I think he'll go to a certain point, but that's not where his comfort zone is. Let me do this, Tom. I want to take a quick break. I want to get back to a larger conversation about what I took out of that Alabama game having to do with college football in general and where it's headed and where it is, really. Take a quick break on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with Tom Luganville from ESPN. Back right after this. And we're back with Tom Luganville from ESPN talking college football, some offseason stuff. So my bigger takeaway, see, I think a lot of people get stuck on where does Alabama go from here. My bigger takeaway on what happened in that national championship game is I think in the past when you had two teams of equal talent, right, the defenses would sort of rise to the top. Yes. Now, listen, Clemson and Alabama have already played a couple of national championship games that have been barn burners, so maybe I'm past the, the ship has already sailed on this to a certain degree. But this Alabama team was not built to stop great offenses because I don't think great offenses can be stopped anymore. This Alabama team was Nick Saban acknowledging that fact and saying, no, 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 no. what I need is when the other team has a great quarterback – I need a great quarterback. I need an offense that can outscore the other great teams. Now, again, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but what I took away from it is Alabama lost that game as much because of its offense having malfunctions in the red zone and throwing two turnovers. That game should that game should have been forty-four to forty or something along those lines. That's what the way those two teams were built. I just feel like we have gotten to a point now in college football is if you have a good quarterback, good defense doesn't stop good offense. Offenses will win out when teams are close. Yeah, and I would agree with that. And that being said, though, we still, outside of the Oregon team that took on Ohio State in 2014, the common denominator of the five years of the college football playoff has been that the two best defensive teams or the two best teams with the best personnel up front have played for the national championship. Mm -hmm. But I would agree with you that it's almost become impossible in today's landscape to, to just stop people. I mean, you're to the point now where you're hoping to get a couple of stops a game, and then you're counting on your, your offense to manufacture points off of those stops that you've generated. I don't think people look at playing defense anymore about the way they used to in terms of, well, we can't let these guys cross the 50-yard line. Or, you know, we've got to make sure we tackle in space. Well, of course you better tackle in space, but the number one thing you've got to worry about now is giving up explosive plays. If you talk to every coach in America, their biggest – concern on defense is giving up plays of 15 20 yards or more and on offense their biggest goal is to produce plays of 15 or 20 yards or more so what it comes down to is who plays the most efficient red zone defense Mm. and everybody you start looking at the numbers and statistics that matter it's it's getting off the field on third down it's turnover margin it's uh it's red zone efficiency defense but Really, it's about limiting explosive play. That has that, that become such an increasingly difficult thing to do. And then all of a sudden, you give up some explosive plays and no time's gone off the clock, and now it puts pressure on your offense because you feel like you're in a track meet. You've got to keep pace. The challenge now has been forcing offenses to earn it, to go the length of the field, for them to get frustrated and make a mistake because maybe they're used to just going up and down the field and now you can't. And I don't know whether you're Alabama, whether you're Clemson or anybody else, if that's a realistic goal anymore as a defense where, 
you know, that was what defensive football had always been predicated upon. I just don't know if it's possible anymore. Yeah, it's funny. I, I thought Clemson played modern great defense, right? They got two picks. One they scored on, which makes it even better. They had a yep. bunch of red zone stops. Anytime Alabama got behind the sticks, they capitalized, right? So you just like you were saying, like Alabama drives down to the one, they have a false start. Now it's first and goal from the six, or maybe it was third and goal from the six. I can't remember. They had a key false start, and they capitalized on that play. They stopped Alabama there, and they made him kick a field goal. And that sort of modern great defense, be pretty good on third down, especially third and long, get a couple of turnovers, get a couple of red zone stops, and, yeah, yeah, we gave up 450 yards and six yards of play, but we played a great defensive game. Oh, my gosh. I mean, not to get off point here, but the the best teams that Mike Gundy has had at Oklahoma State, the best teams that he's he's had have been off the charts in red zone defense and enforced turnovers, yet give up 450 yards a game. Yeah. But it's really hard to replicate that, though. I think I think from year oh, to year, it becomes really hard to be a good red zone defense, right? Not only that, it becomes even harder to be able to match forced turnovers. You know, oh, everybody totally. talks about the turnover belt or whatever gimmick they have. Well, that thing's all fine and dandy when things are going good. But the next year, you might not come up with any. You yeah. just you can't you cannot fabricate that. Yeah, it's tough. Like you just you're right. The ball balls bounce different ways. Deflections go a different direction, or a, guy, a DB just drops a pick, and all of a sudden, like your great plan of getting a bunch of turnovers goes out the window. All right, let me let me roll to a, a little bit of a different subject, and that's some of the transfer quarter. And then I want to hit you on recruiting one last thing. But so go some of these transfer quarterbacks came out today. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and Brandon Wimbush it looks like is going to end up at UCF. Always an interesting that that was an interesting landing spot. Looks like Tate Martell could end up being in this process. That was a very interesting one because he sort of left after saying, "No, no, no, I'm going to stand my ground here." I don't here. understand that one. Yeah, that, that was a, that, that makes zero sense to me. Let me ask you about a bigger picture here, and that is, I, I kind of tweeted this earlier today, and that is, if your team, because like I saw some UCF fans going, "Yeah, Wimbush will come down here and he'll compete against Mac," and my impression of these things is, if your team brings in one of these grad transfer quarterbacks, it is a tell that your coach does not believe in the guys, totally believe in the guys he has. Do you you think I'm on the the right path there? So Austin Kendall Mm -hmm. at Oklahoma puts himself in the transfer portal because if he thinks Jalen Hurts is coming to Oklahoma – it ain't to be Austin Kendall's backup. Right. That's because I think fans will look at this and say, no, 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 he's still going to compete. No, no, no. Listen, yeah. that's a tell. If your coach, if you, they're bringing in, if they're bringing in Brandon Wimbush to UCF, that means a probably not good news for Mackenzie Milton. But I think we all understand that that's a long road ahead for that young man, and we hope that everything yeah. goes okay. But it also says Daryl Mack. Yeah, maybe we'd like something better than Daryl Mack. Which, you know, no no offense to the kid. He played really well at the end of the year. But, again, that shows me that if you were really comfortable with Daryl Mack, you wouldn't bring this other guy in. Right. There's no question about that. Now, I want to go back to Tate Martell for a moment because, to my knowledge, Daryl Mack has not put himself in the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it sounds like if, if I'm Daryl Mack, I'm saying, okay, well, he's got to come in and beat me out, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. That's my problem with Tate Martell. Tate Martell is looking at this from a completely reversed angle. He should be he should be saying, I'm the incumbent here. I've been within the offense. I know this locker room. I know this coaching staff. I know what's asked of me. 
it's not my job to beat out Justin Fields if you get the waiver. It's his job to beat me out. But instead, you just up and decide to transfer. And, I, and I'll say this, because I have very strong feelings about this transfer portal thing, because I think it's been poorly mismanaged in the sense that I don't believe that if you put yourself in the portal, you should be able to come back out. Mm-hmm. Because what does that tell you, the, your locker room? What does that tell your coaching staff? What does that tell your fan base? I mean, if I'm Ryan Day, I see this as a tremendous opportunity to make my first difficult decision as the head coach at Ohio State and tell Tate Martell, you're either staying or you're going. We're not going to continue to feed you. We're not going to continue to train you. We're not going to have you go through spring football. You're either an Ohio State Buckeye and you believe you can win this job or not. And put your foot down and send a message. Because I think the transfer portal should be a 72-hour period where if you really think long and hard enough that you think you may want to transfer, okay, fine. You have no, we have no problem with that. You sit over here for a couple of days, give it two or three days to think about it, see who contacts you, and see what your viability is on the open market. But to allow that to linger, to allow players to continue to practice with their team when you don't even believe they may not want to be there, I don't think that's healthy for a football program. I think so you're allowing these guys to go, allowing these guys to go in and out. Makes, it, it's almost like allowing guys to declare for the NFL draft and then say, wait, I've changed my mind. I want to go back. Well, now that college program has, they've already assigned the, the scholarship that you just gave up. I, so they've I, already started to massage their roster. I, I would agree with you, Tom. And, and the teams can do that, right? I mean, I think part of the rule here is like, in other words, Ryan Day would face no repercussions if he went to Tate Martell and said, okay, you're in there. Now we take you off our roster. You can go find a, right. but again, what I think schools to a certain degree will bring this on themselves. I mean, with Georgia, the reason why Georgia didn't pull fields immediately, because I think oh. they felt like they wanted to, the time to maybe change his mind sure. or, or they wanted him there for the sugar bowl with the idea that maybe he, we, we can use him in that game and maybe that will change his mind. So again, from a coach's standpoint, it's not just a matter of like the rules allow you to do that, but you are sort of like, well, you know, maybe it's in my best interest if I let him sort of play along with his game. I will say this, though, about Martell. And then one quick thing on recruit. I want to get some thoughts on recruiting from me mm-hmm. before I let you go. Just what we said before, if you're bringing in Justin Fields, aren't you signaling to Tate Martell that we believe this guy is better than you? I mean, yeah, I think to some degree. And I think that's a natural human instinct and thought process. I don't mm-hmm. think there's any question. Okay, so let me let me wrap up with some recruiting before I let you go, Tom. As with last year, now the second year of the early signing period, right, early right, recruiting yeah. signing period, most of the signings are done, right? Yeah. I, I don't know you you track the percentages. How many scholarships are left FBS wide, or percentage of scholarships are left FBS wide? And what is the most interesting thing you're watching for coming into the next signing period? Last year for the first signing period, there's roughly 2,800 players in a given class. 2,000 of them signed. That was 72%. That percentage went up about 4% okay. to just over 75, just under 76%. So really only a quarter of the class of 2,800 kids are left. Mm-hmm. The majority of those kids are likely at the group of five level or bottom tier power five schools that you know, have now that the player pool has narrowed and they've got their, you know, their radar, you know, set on a certain, you know, type of kid or a certain uh, clump of kids, they're not having to use all of their resources to go out there and manage 25 guys anymore. 
For some schools, it might be two. For other schools, it might be four to six. Some it might just be it might just be eight, depending on what their scholarships uh, are left uh, and available. But it's the it's the group of five schools that during the month of January, in my opinion, that really flourish because you've removed 76 percent of the class, and the ones that are left over are by and large middle tier type prospects that are going to be MAC players, Conference USA, Sun Belt, WAC, Mountain West what have you. And so that's where you see a heavy concentration of recruitment and the ability to close on kids. Um, because what, what, what those kids start to find out is when they thought they were on a power five back burner and they realize that they're really not. Now they start focusing to the more realistic schools that truly want them have been rec- recruiting them and coveting them for several months. So I, you know, there's a couple of things that I'm looking for. I want to see how UCLA finishes things out. I think a lot of people looked at them as having a very disappointing first go around. USC has gotten off to a, a good start in the month of January with, with some recent verbal commitments. So how does Clay Helton, number one, finish? How does he manage the loss of Cliff Kingsbury? And the, does that impact recruiting prior to February 6th? And then if you look at most of the top-tier schools across the country that have signed 98 99 100% of their class, you've got to acknowledge the fact that we are going to potentially, with the new signing period, create a wider gap between the haves and have-nots when you have some schools that enter in the month of January and they're recruiting and evaluating the 2020 and 2021 class, while some of their competitors might still need to sign 10 guys in the 2019 class. So there's some real advantages depending on which program you're at towards having this early signing period. Tom Luganville from ESPN. You can hear him on Sirius XM. You can, you can see and hear Tom just about everywhere. He is the hardest working man in show business. Tom, man, Lugs, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this with me today. Try to get a little rest in before the signing period because I know that will increase your workload again. And hopefully we will uh, chat again soon. It sounds good, man. I appreciate you having me. And now three and out. First down. The official number will be known on Friday, but it looks like more than 130 underclassmen have declared for the NFL draft. Now, some of those players will not be classified as underclassmen when it's all said and done. In some cases, they will be players who have graduated and been in school for more than three years. They end up in a different category. Those players don't need special clearance from the NFL to be eligible for the draft. But often they announce as if they do because they want to give their coaches and teams notification that they won't return for another season. What to make of all the early defections? Well, youth is a commodity in today's NFL. For a lot of players, returning to school might not increase their value relative to getting a year older. Second down. So after the draft declarations, we often try to assess which teams were hurt most by the departures. It's easy to say Alabama because it lost seven very talented players, but none of those losses were particularly surprising, and there's always another blue chip in the pipeline in Tuscaloosa. The team that I think might have gotten hit the hardest was Penn State because it lost several players who are not like clear-cut first-round talents, Players like Miles Sanders, uh, defensive tackle Kevin Givens, defensive end Sharif Miller, they're all likely to be drafted. They're good players, but they're also the kinds of players who could have come back for another year of development and maybe made huge contributions in 2019. 
Penn State has been recruiting very well lately. I think the departure of those players will test just how well James Franklin has the machine running in Happy Valley. Third down, a quick word on Kyle Flood drawing interest from Alabama as a possible new offensive line coach. I think that will make a lot of folks cringe considering how Flood's tenure as head coach at Rutgers crashed under NCAA violations. Flood got thrust into a head coaching job when he probably wasn't ready and things definitely got away from him. But that doesn't mean he couldn't be a good offensive line coach. But because of his past failures as head coach, I'm guessing a lot of Alabama fans will judge him not worthy, especially if he comes as a package deal with Steve Sarkeesian from the Atlanta Falcons. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.